It's Curious City, where we take your questions about Chicago and the region and investigate, report, explore from WBEZ. Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar, Ashhadu an la ilaha illallah, Ashhadu an la ilaha illallah, Ashhadu anna Muhammad Rasulullah. Every weekday, about a hundred Muslims gather in the downtown Islamic Center for afternoon prayers. The group is diverse including African-American Muslims, Arab-Americans, South Asians, East Asians. After about 10 minutes of prayer, Shafiq Khan offers a short reading from the Hadith, an Islamic text. alaikum. Dear brothers and sisters, first of all, I hope all of you had a nice weekend. Uh, this is a Hadith regarding uh, fear. Allah is sufficient for us, and He is the best disposer of our affairs. Was said by Abraham. The Downtown Islamic Center is one of more than a hundred mosques in the Chicago area, and around a half a million Muslims live in the area. They come to pray, take classes, and attend events at mosques like this. But not all of them are as diverse as this mosque, which is located in the Loop. I'm Alexandra Solomon, and our question this week is about that diversity. It comes from Luann Sorensen. Luann teaches English as a second language, and many of her students are practicing Muslims from Arab countries like Saudi Arabia. She says she's always thinking about ways her students can get out and meet Americans. So she asked Curious City, In the Chicago area, do Arab Muslims attend the same mosques as African-American Muslims? To find the answer, Curious City reached out to several Muslim leaders in the Chicago area, and there were some things they all seemed to agree on. You don't need a membership. You don't need uh, any kind of pass. If there's a mosque, any Muslim who identify himself or herself can just walk in and join the prayer. That's Kifa Mustafa. He's originally from Lebanon and is the imam at the prayer center of Orland Park, a mosque that serves mostly Arab Muslims. And as Imam Mustafa says, in theory, yes, Muslims of all backgrounds can attend the same mosques, and sometimes they do. But more often, they prefer to stick to their own neighborhood mosque. Here's Tariq El-Amin, the imam of Masjid Al-Taqwa on Chicago's southeast side. On the polite side, we say Chicago is a city of neighborhoods, but we understand those of us who, who, who live here and who've experienced it, that it is really just code for a segregated city. So, big surprise. Neighborhood mosques, they're often as segregated as the neighborhood they're in. The Muslim leaders we spoke with say they don't often talk about segregation within the community. So, Curious City invited four Muslim leaders, both black and Arab, to come together and talk more about the relationship between their communities. It was the first time the four of them had ever come together for a conversation like this one. In addition to Imam Mustafa and Imam Tariq, who you heard from earlier, we also invited Hind Maki. I'm an interfaith and anti-racism educator. Hind's family comes from Sudan, and she identifies as Afro-Arab. Imam Sultan Mohammed, who is African-American, also joined us. I'm a great-grandchild of the Honorable Elijah Mohammed and currently serve as 
uh, national imam of the Nation of Islam at our national headquarters, Mosque Maryam. We started our conversation by asking, given the fact that Chicago is such a segregated city, how does that impact the way Arab Muslims and African-American Muslims interact? Here's Kifa Mustafa. So there is this, you know, segregation. We can talk a lot about community segregation on individual levels because there's not much interaction. I used to be leading prayer as an imam in the mosque on uh, Ashland and 48th, uh, Salam Mosque. And over there, there are the African majority, you know, people praying, and then there are the uh, store owners, Arabs or into Pakistani. So the mosque represented a place where everyone came together. But then when I shifted myself to the suburb, if it was Bridgeview or now Orland Park, so back to the segregation of what the city is all about, so you see less African-American among and then more, you know, of, of the Arab community around. Tariq? Um, I would add also the Muslim community is really a microcosm, I believe, of the larger American community because of its diversity. Uh, but when we look at what has caused the segregation within the Muslim community, it is pretty much the same thing that has been at the root of the segregation in the American community. Hint. I think all of us have been speaking about this with this understanding that most Muslims believe that Islam is an inherently anti-racist religion. And this, this is based on the Quranic ethos of racial justice and equality, right? So from the origin, most Muslims, even if they themselves will say, well, I feel uncomfortable driving in the West Side or I feel you know, scared going to that mosque or that church on that side of the, the, the city, most Muslims will still say that Islam is anti-racist. Uh, Imam Sultan, what about you? Yes, um, the moving between communities has always existed to some degree or another, just depending, again, on location. Uh, for instance, those masajid or mosques that are closer to the lake or the city uh, have more diverse uh, populations. You know, our mosque, uh, Mosque Maryam, uh, you'll see... Turkish, Palestinian, uh, Black American, uh, Nigerian, on a consist- consistent level, uh, but again, closer to uh, an area that is more diverse in its population itself being near the city. Imam Tariq, I mean, is that what you've seen? Do you get, you're in a mosque in, on the south side of Chicago, um, do you get a diverse crowd at the mosque? Diverse as in four or five people being the diversity. Uh, so I, I want to be careful and, in, in, you know, over in using the word diverse. I'll actually give you a personal story. My parents are immigrants and they immigrated from Sudan. And so that binary of black and Arab is not a binary that I really accept in my life. I am both black and Arab. I identify actually as Afro-Arab. And one of the things that they were thinking about of where to live was they wanted a place, uh, a community, where we would be around Muslims who were similar to us in important ways. And that was language for them. And so they chose to live in an Arab community. At the same time, my parents, both of them, worked with 
varying African-American Muslim communities. And so growing up, even though we lived near an Arabic-speaking mosque, we would travel out to the south side, to the west side, to various African-American um, Muslim communities. I have very fond memories of um, joining my dad in prayer and having bean pie afterward, <laughs> right? I do want to reflect on something, and that is my experience was a bit different in that I went to, uh, well, it was uh, Sister Claire Muhammad School uh, here at the time. So this is the late 70s, early 80s. And my experience was that there was not much diversity aside from my, my Arabic teacher, a uh, sister from uh, Pakistan. Outside of that, there was not much interaction that I had uh, or that I could observe my family had with anyone who was, uh, who was not black. So this was a predominantly African-American Muslim school? Yeah, majority, uh, absolutely. And it was not really until probably into my mid-20s where I began to, you know, as I'm deliberate about my associations and expanding my, my circles, uh, that I began to meet and form relationships, you know, with Muslims outside of the African-American community. As we talked about how divided the city is, our panelists kept coming back to this one idea, that being Muslim means something different for African-American Muslims and Arab Muslims. Here's Imam Sultan. Black Americans, those that are descendants of slaves, have a very different approach to what Islam has meant uh, for us as a people. It has been a liberating force. It has been a framework of freedom, justice, and equality that allows uh, black people to come out of the structures uh, of white supremacy that we have faced over various centuries. Um, whereas with our migrant communities, you have an influx of various nationalities that generally come from, you know, it's a generalization, come from professional backgrounds that are on a track of indigenization, which is quite different uh, from one seeking rights in their own land, city, and community. Um, Imam Mustafa, I'm, I'm curious, what role does Islam play then for, for the immigrant Muslim who's coming here, who's perhaps coming from a country where there has been oppression and they come to a country where um, there are, at least by law, more freedoms. How would you <clears throat> explain sort of what Islam means for the immigrant Muslim? I think it's shifting. The first generation came, and let me say it bluntly, they came on a, on a horse of, of, of a white America, you know, the dream of uh, Hollywood and, you know, establishing. They did not incorporate much of what struggles the black American community had to go through. There certainly is this idea that Americanness equals whiteness, right? And of Arab immigrants, by law, by the census, they're designated as white. And I say they, I mean we, my family, <laughs> you know, my father and my cousins with their afros are legally designated as white people. But our reality, um, especially for the men in my family, is that they are seen by society, they're seen by the police as black people. And so that's another issue that I think a lot of immigrant mosques are simply not equipped to handle. Imam Mustafa, as, as a imam of an immigrant mosque, is your mosque equipped to handle what Hind has mentioned? Well, 
So there's this shift of understanding the imams, the leaders are maturing up in relation to the challenges that they are facing with. And the last, let me just give you an example. In the last four months, I have married seven Arab Muslim girls to converts, something that was totally like sensitive in the 80s or 90s. This was like completely off track. Some of them were African-American Muslims, some of them were Latino, some of them were Caucasians. And the reason is that the community has grown in large numbers. The parents' perception of what fits their daughter as the best candidate could be, uh, you know, education, wealth, uh, religiosity, and a certain... But now the girls are talking about communication skills, you know, mindsets, you know, close to each other. So the whole perception is changing, you know, with the new generation coming up. And we need to incorporate that in our uh, sermons and our education to the public. So, yeah, the community is not where it's supposed to be yet, but I think people are waking up to what we need to be f- to move on. Um, that's awesome to hear that you've, <laughs> you've done seven. <laughs> uh, and I think we'll know that we are moving in the best direction. I think an indicator is going to be the more interracial marriages that we see among in the Muslim community, I think that is going to be a clear indicator that there's, uh, there's more connectivity and that a lot of these perceptions of, uh, uh, of false devaluation have begun to fade away. Hind, as someone who works on interfaith issues, I'm wondering if you think that sort of the moment that we're in where we've seen the Black Lives Matter movement, where we have a president who issued a ban on people coming from certain Muslim countries, where we've seen demonstrations in Charlottesville, where we're thinking about how our monuments uh, represent our history, how have those things impacted Mm -hmm. those relations? So a few years ago when Mike Brown was first shot and killed, um, I remember having conversation with some friends of mine who were, who were Muslim from different backgrounds, Arab and South Asian, but from immigrant backgrounds. And I was the only black person there. And a few a few of my friends even made the argument, oh, well, we don't really know what happened. I was dismayed, <laughs> you know, that they were my friends. I thought they were more woke <laughs> than that. But... There, there still was a sense of um, we're going to believe the official story. Today, or even a year ago with Laquan McDonald, there isn't that questioning anymore. There is this acceptance that this country has always been and remains brutally anti-black, that this is a real issue, that there's this question of white supremacy that exists and that we need to tackle. Many people who voted for Trump voted for him on this basis that America is a white country and should be a white country. And anyone who symbolizes anything but white Christianity needs to go. And I think that that is a silver lining in this cloud of the presidency that a lot of American Muslims, especially those who come from very well-off backgrounds, who have, you know, always lived in the suburbs, who are coming from a professional background, who are maybe, I would say, like, bougie Muslims, you know, are, are becoming more aware of this. I believe it's going to fire back in a good way for the minorities. Every day Islam is being spoken about, and this is like PR for Islam, like, really? This has forced us as communities to establish coalitions 
that go beyond our own traditional faith practice to be able to navigate the problems that Mr. Trump is throwing in the track of of true liberation for so-called minorities. So we may say that it may be good uh, in the long run, but what is the price we have to pay in this journey? So, remember this conversation got started with Luann's question. She wanted to know whether her Arab Muslim students would find community at an African-American mosque. The simple answer is they'd be welcome in the mosque. But the leaders we heard from say the relationship between these communities is still a work in progress. In fact, as our discussion drew to a close, Hind, Imam Mustafa, Imam Tariq, and Imam Sultan took out their cell phones, began to exchange numbers and business cards. They were making plans to continue the conversation. Imam Tariq, but if you have a number, I'll take it. Reporting for this story comes from Sarah Geis and me, Alexandra Solomon. Support for Curious City comes from the Conant Family Foundation. Next time on Curious City. Recent news of earthquakes and hurricanes may have you wondering if Chicago is safe from natural disasters. And the good news is we're pretty safe from those kind. But the bad news is we are already in climate change. We're seeing intense rain events. We're seeing drought. We're seeing, you know, intense heat, intense cold. Chicago's vulnerability to natural disaster. That's next time on WBEZ's Curious City. Before we start the show, we here at Curious City want to let you in on a little-known fact about WBEZ. 89% of all our funding comes from community support, including contributions from curious listeners like you. If this program has changed how you see Chicago, please consider supporting this program at wbez.org curious. Thank you.